All my grandparents and parents were born and raised on Central and Eastern Ireland country in the beautiful desert of Central Australia, as was I and my five siblings. Both my grandmothers could speak 12 languages between them and they could recreate landscapes with fire skills that would send shivers up any environmental scientist. <laughs> they were intelligent by any test, yet they were only judged by one feature, the colour of their skin. My grandfather was a decorated World War II veteran who despite his valiant efforts to fight for his country, he too was judged, seen by some to be undeserving of the same rights as others, let alone those deserved for a returned soldier. Grandparents whose history and lived experience of exclusion due to race, then and even now, fall mostly on deaf ears. A history that needs to be owned, heard and told. On the promise of so many opportunities and an education, my nana and her sister Winnie left Alice Springs and headed south to Adelaide, told by others that it would lift them out of their poverty and their disadvantage, but it was all based on lies. Instead, my nana, Dolly, she was used as a domestic for a wealthy family in the Adelaide Hills, where after many years of hard menial work and with no education, she was still no better off than when she had left her homeland of Alice Springs. In fact, my nana was only seen as valuable when she gave birth to a baby girl with almost white porcelain skin, a characteristic that brought much delight to her employer as the rich and fertile couple could easily pass his newborn baby on as their own. The wealthy couple told my nana how they could give her baby a happy and, health, happy and healthy home, a better home, where she would be loved and she would be cared for, where they could offer her so much more than she could ever give her baby that she named Jeannie, my mother. Pressured with offers of more money and more empty promises, they tried to convince my nana to give up her baby girl. But my nana, yes, she was uneducated, yes, she was poor, and yes, she was Aboriginal. But she was no fool. And shortly thereafter, she left Adelaide, returning to Alice Springs with both her sister and her beautiful newborn baby girl, Jeannie, in her arms. In Alice Springs, my mum, Jeannie, did grow up in a happy and healthy household. They were poor, yes, but so too were many other families like her at the time. And mum recalls happy times where she could speak her language, where she had cousins, where she had family all around her, where she could run around like the wind without a worry in the world. But what she didn't know was that her happiness was soon to end because age 12, welfare officers came to the house unannounced and with no paperwork for anyone to read, let alone sign, and with no permission and then knowing that her mother was not there, they took my mum and her 12 and her 10 year old brother. Taken, some would say stolen. It doesn't matter what you call it, they were taken without consent 
taken on a promise of a holiday, except it was anything but. After arriving in Melbourne, mum was immediately separated from her brother. And my mother tells the story how she felt she'd lost her brother forever. She asked herself every day and night, how will I tell my family that I've lost my little brother and I'm responsible for losing him? Why did they not let me say goodbye? Does my mother even know what's happened to us or even where we are? That burden, let alone that guilt that she was feeling was not hers for her to own. And yet she carried it both consciously and subconsciously for years. Many others did in fact know where her little brother was. In fact, they had that information right at their fingertips, but they decided that it would be in mum's best interest for her not to know, not only where he was, but any information about him at all. My mum tells the story how she was made to write letters every Sunday back to her mother. She was told not to write any, anything sad or bad so that her mother would worry. But she need not have worried because the truth was the letters that she wrote were never read by her mother because they were never mailed. No voice, no platform, no power. Yet mum was constantly reminded that she was privileged and that she was one of the lucky ones that should be grateful for all that she had. She was privileged, privileged to be taken away from her family to be assimilated into white society where it would be guaranteed that she would lose her language, her connections to family, country and her culture. But benefit she did not from this privilege, despite her white porcelain skin, despite her access to education, all because others reminded her about her Aboriginality, where she experienced exclusion instead of inclusion, all done in her best interest. And lucky, well, nothing could have been further from the truth. Perhaps that's why I struggled to understand except why my mother believed that an education was a key driver for her five children's own successful futures. I raise this history not for you to feel guilty or to ask for your sympathy or compassion. Instead, I want you to outline and acknowledge how decisions by others for so many Aboriginal people are made on promises that are broken. And all that we ask is that you hear our history and that you own it and you make change and you ensure that it never, ever happens again. Because your privilege is not the same as mine. It never will be. Your privilege is white privilege and like gender and class privileges, it can come unearned and it can be automatic. So automatic that you are generally and completely unaware of it. It might be invisible to you, but it's not to us. What I'm trying to paint is a picture, not in black and white, but in full colour, that illustrates that even when an Aboriginal person earns privileges, like an education, like a job, or a platform, we are not guaranteed to have a voice that is heard. Tonight, I stand in front of you as a qualified lawyer 
with a science degree and management qualifications. And most recently, as your extremely proud 2022 Northern Territories Australian of the Year. My experiences in my 50 years plus weren't learnt by reading a textbook or by attending a lecture. Instead, it was growing up as a child in Alice Springs and later first-hand as a police officer, a lawyer and as an Aboriginal woman. Growing up in Alice Springs was hard. I'd witnessed from an early age much injustice. I learned very quickly that we were treated differently and I knew that I did not have the answers to the questions of why. But I knew that I felt discomfort and humiliation when it happened and I didn't like it. I couldn't put it into words as a child, but it made me feel like I was a second class citizen in my own country on my own land. My parents were both tough and fair. Dad worked hard on a shovel from age 10 to support his family of 14 and later a family of his own. But what he installed in us alongside mum were the values and rewards for being kind, fair, polite and honest, but also brave. So it should come as no surprise that my parents made us own our mistakes and our failures, but they also made sure that we suffered the consequences for both ill-informed and bad decisions. And out of the five siblings back then, I was labelled a problem child. <laughs> Not because I was bad or I was difficult, but because I asked a lot of questions to my parents that they didn't have the answers to because they, they were about what I saw and what I experienced as a child, the injustice and unfairness. But what I did know without a shadow of doubt, age 10, is that I wanted to be a police officer because I ha believed that it had a place for me where I could fight for justice for all. So in 1988, Alone, I left my hometown of Alice Springs to join the South Australian Police Force. Aged 18, I wore a blue uniform with great pride in a career that I believe represented and helped the entire community where justice would be delivered every day. But I was wrong. I spent over a decade in the South Australian Police Force. I wasn't naive. I had expected that I would see bodies in the morgue and gruesome road accidents, have people dying in my arms. And yes, I saw my fair share, so much so that the impact of death took on a different cloak for me for many years to come, where it became an all too prominent feature in my life as an Aboriginal woman, where I saw too many people taken too early where I became paralysed and numb to feel any grief or pain, where I ended up questioning if I was really making a difference. But what I did see was that I was useful, especially when I was posted to areas with significant Aboriginal populations. But far too often, my efforts were often criticised and my professionalism questioned. Eventually, the trauma and the racism that I experienced from fellow officers and the public combined made me chronically stressed. And after a decade of service, I was assaulted badly in the line of duty and my life went into crisis. I hit rock bottom.
It was only then that I realised the extent to which I'd been enduring gross harassment, but I was not acknowledging it because I wanted so badly to be a police officer. I wanted nothing more than to fit in. I wanted people to not see my colour, but my true worth because I was a good cop. I was a fair and an honest cop, but I knew that the way that people were treating me was wrong. I made a complaint of racism to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission that led me to a 35-day gruelling session in the federal court that captured massive media attention, only to end in an out-of-court settlement with the police with no apology. And I was gutted because my dream of justice through policing was gone forever. I do want to acknowledge those police officers who gave evidence in my support in the court case and to those who to this day suffer PTSD and other issues because of the confronting nature of their work and their need for better support. And despite my 30 years plus in the justice system and with my awards, including one of the highest and the most prestigious awards in the country, my ability to access and use a platform to raise my voice and be heard is still not guaranteed. Instead, I'm made to feel like a problem, a troublemaker, an imposter and a fraud. To put it bluntly, a thief of my privilege where I'm constantly reminded and told that I must stay in my lane. The Australian of the Year platform is expected to reignite or raise issues within the wider community that understands topics of national significance. And for me, that topic is racism in all its forms. This preoccupation is in, underpinned by generations of hard lessons, hurt and humiliation, but also resilience and working with others to deliver the much needed change in a system that delivers gross inequality and in outcomes stemming from prejudice, judgment and biases. But even with this great honour, alongside my education and my personal experiences, there are others that chose to oppose my advocacy and ability to speak, reminding me that you just need to stay in your lane. Where I'm told that it's just too uncomfortable, way too uncomfortable for all of us, Leanne, when you start to talk about systemic racism where I am made to take responsibility and feel guilty for raising something that I cannot control or change on my own. Because I know that the power of this change ultimately sits with others. And many of these others are the very ones who could make that change happen. The ones who tell me to stay in my lane. Before I went out for the consultations for the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, Aboriginal people would tell me, Leanne, we're exhausted by consultations that don't bring us results. We can't keep talking and we won't listen anymore. People told me that they were fatigued and telling those like me who were tasked to help them, who would ask questions of what's needed and then they would deliver nothing. I was told that I not only needed to listen, but to hear, but I really needed to deliver on the outcomes because I was sick of the endless list of broken promises. 
I could still see those faces right in front of me, not just with the battle scars from the desert wind and the sun, but more concerning, those deep scars and wounds, old and new, exposed for all to see from domestic and family violence. A reminder for me and others present of the many broken promises of systems that had failed them. Faces of young and old, men, women and children, looking at me, telling me, reminding me of the impacts of systemic racism that sits behind the statistics, the data and the pie charts that inform the high incarceration, child protection and suicide rates. Faces of people who are the evidence of systems and service providers who ignore the tragic, enduring lifetime consequences for the Aboriginal people that inform them. Aboriginal people who have struggled to access services because others chose to do what they decided was in our best interests. Those who were paid to help us, but chose to do what they thought we needed instead of the job that they are paid to do. In my 30 years in the justice system, especially as a police officer, I've seen victims dismissed when they were owed a professional response. Where the application of fairness and justice was denied from authorities and their voices fell on deaf ears. Where over decades their actions and inaction, whether well-intended, ignorant or arrogant, it does not matter because the harm caused is still the same. It'll come as no surprise that racism has been present in almost every aspect of my life. So it was of no surprise when it was raised at every consultation for the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, all 160 of them across the entire territory. But when I do speak out, I'm told that my tone is too aggressive, that I'm too emotional, I'm too angry and too insensitive as I upset too many people when I raise the issue of racism in all its forms as a barrier resulting in Aboriginal disadvantage, poverty and a failure to access services. Is it any wonder that the Aboriginal people that I met, many of them, who I've met across my careers have given up where they just accept that the poor and unprofessional service delivery that they get is what they deserve, accepting that's just how we are treated. So you tell me, what is it like for the abused young Aboriginal girl with chronic trauma who witnessed violence in her community and in her family who just wants it to stop? What type of support does she have when she can't be heard? which you can't rely on others to raise her issues on their platforms because others chose to let sensitivities around the issues of racism to be the reason why she can't get the help that she needs. What does she grow into? Another Leanne Little or just another person who has a voice that isn't heard, who has no power to influence the change that she so desperately wants now and in the future? Or does she just become another statistic of a kid in trouble, or even worse, another young person who takes their life? You tell me, how do I respond to this question? Why does my community feel unsafe 
where domestic and family violence and sexual assault rates are my pain and my shame, not yours. Yet there are more police and more support services in our community than ever. How is it that you measure success to improve community safety on police numbers alongside arrest and report and imprisonment rates? Yet my measure is as simple as, am I gonna be safe from sexual assault when I go to bed tonight? How can you say that the answer to successful education is school attendance, yet I say we need English as second language specialists, yet all we get is young, inexperienced teachers? When your measure of success is not measured by improving children's literacy or numeracy so they can read and write at their age level, but how many kids you can keep in your classroom for the entire day, or even worse, by how many kids you can get to play sport on the basketball court. Why is it that when I ring the after hours bell at the local clinic on my own land, you turn me away when I have chest pains and you refuse to accept responsibility when I show you on your own sign on the front of your clinic that chest pains are an emergency, where instead of prevention, your measure of success is on how many people you see each day in your clinic. But I measure your success on whether my health needs will be met and by the number of members of my family that are in hospital or in the cemetery. I'm still perplexed as to why so many people say that they work well with Aboriginal people. The very people that are paid well to work with us to make our lives better to reduce youth suicide and to educate us so we can have a job and a career or those who are charged to keep us safe. But why is it that they never ask the very people that they are charged with helping this question? Am I meeting your needs just as much as I'm meeting those of my boss? What I can't understand either is what more do you need to know that you don't already know or you can get access to? to make change happen or even progress? Is it more data? Is it more statistics? Or more Royal Commissions that produce more volumes of reports with recommendations to pile on top of all those unimplemented from the last? Or is it more bodies in the morgue? Or more coronial inquests? Or more children in detention and adults in prison? Because how many red flags do you need to see? And how wide do the cracks need to be? And how many more people do you need to fall between those cracks before we can all see the change that we want and we both need? Why is it that I don't feel safe when I respectfully speak out and tell you exactly what the barriers are and what the solutions are to fix the problems? Why is it your discomfort the reason why I can't speak out about racism? And why is it your embarrassment, the reason why you won't listen or even talk to me when I've asked, and I've been asked to provide frank and fearless advice? And why is it that my lived experiences as an Aboriginal person are seen and labelled as problematic or difficult to manage, yet yours is seen as achieving the essential criteria in your job description? And why is it that my connections and my relationships with Aboriginal people were seen as an apparent conflict of interest 
that your connections with us are labelled as meritorious and measured as success towards reconciliation. All whilst you refuse to acknowledge that there is structural racism in the workplace, let alone the reality that racism is an issue that impacts on Aboriginal Territorians almost every day. But we must also remember that racism doesn't only, doesn't only affect Aboriginal people because it impacts on all Australians. It oppresses all marginalised and racialised communities and it tear apart social cohesion and it grossly weights productivity and diminishes all of us by these harms and injustices. I've got no doubt that some of you will be feeling a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit of discomfort from hearing what I've raised tonight. And I apologise for that. But my intent is not to offend, but to get to you to start thinking critically and deeply because what matters most is how you respond to this discomfort and what you do next when you leave here tonight to correct the wrongs and to provide a space for change to happen and a shoulder for which change can lean on. One of the most asked questions of me is, Leanne, what is it that gets you out of bed every day to fight the good fight? Well, you're right, it is a fight, but it's not always a good fight. Like many Aboriginal people, my resilience is a result of standing and holding my ground when my voice quivers. My courage reflects both fear and fight. My drive is because I know my grandparents and parents have fought this fight before without a platform. And now that I have one, I will use it so my voice will be heard and the opportunities that I have will not be wasted or lost. But this is the question that I am asked the most. Leanne, why aren't you like the others? And what did you do differently? My reply is always the same. So who are the others? The others are those Aboriginal people who tried to speak and use their voice, but they were shut down. Where racism and all its forms were present, but they had no ability to complain or seek redress. The others are those who face racism in every aspect of their daily lives, who ask for services that should be their right, but even when they exist, they are seen as a gift from the taxpayers or evidence of a caring, multicultural, reconciled society. And what did I do differently? Well, let's start with, I hold my ground when my voice and legs shake. I feel the tension of shame and embarrassment when I talk about why we aren't accessing services that we need that the taxpayer pays for, expecting that it will create the change that I so desperately want. That I always have had to be more across the data and more confident of the evidence than and what's required than others around me. And then people have the temerity to say that my apparent confidence makes them feel uncomfortable. And it also has meant, and that I don't, and I won't stay in my lane. It means that I will cross 
the double lines if required. I'm sorry, Warren. Um, but it means that I will choose which lane I use and that not, won't necessarily be the one that you want me to stay in and most definitely not the lane that makes you feel safe and me unsafe or ineffective. Rather, you should be asking, what can I do to allow Leanne to cross those lines and get the job of eliminating racism done? So that's what I did. And that's what I will continue to do until the day I'm put in the ground and I have my last breath. Tonight, I want to dedicate this talk to my parents and my grandparents and to those who have paid the ultimate price. Those who are represented in volumes in the coroner's office, the Royal Commissions and on headstones in the cemeteries. And I want to acknowledge that for several decades now, I've had the privilege to work alongside some amazing people. And for that, I am entirely grateful for those who have helped me throughout my career. And may I continue to be provided with the platforms like the Australian of the Year to honour our fight and to ensure that others can be heard about matters that matter. Let me drive at the speed that I need to. Let me change lanes if I need to. Let me do a U-turn, even if it is over a double line, if it's essential to achieve the change that we must deliver to deliver justice to Aboriginal people. Because if you want more Leanne Littles, that's what's needed. And how hard can that be? So to those out there, let another Leanne Little cross that double line so they don't have to stay in that lane. Be that person that tells them that it's safe to overtake if you look both ways and you are the person making sure that they get where they need to be safely because a measure of success will be when there are more Leanne Littles out there who have a platform that they can use to its full extent where they don't need to be resilient, where they don't need to be silenced, and where they don't need to conform to fit in. Where they can speak and make full use of their advocacy. And I want to thank those, many of you who are in the audience tonight, who continue to hear and listen to me. My previous and present colleagues who are across my entire career, the good ones. Many, as I said, are here tonight those who have listened and heard who have stood up. And it didn't matter if it was behind the scenes or if it created a scene, but especially to those who continue to provide me with a platform so I can and others can continue to combat racism in all its forms. Because you are my heroes who deserve to be nominated for Northern Territories Australian of the Year you are my Australian of the years, this year, next year, and every year. And to those people, you know who you are. I was and I remain very proud to work alongside of you. Thank you. Thank you.